There was a, an amazing event uh, this past few weeks in the art world. Some of you will have seen it. Some of you will have clocked it. You'll be aware of it. Some of you will be wowed by it. Some of you won't have a clue what I'm going on about. Let me explain. There was an auction in Sotheby's, which is one of the big auction houses down in London, and they were auctioning uh, a picture by the famous artist Banksy. Those of you who don't know Banksy, he's, um, he's primarily a street artist. Nobody knows who he is, supposedly, although I'm sure some people do. He's certainly got an agent who's making lots of money for him, so I'm guessing the agent knows who it is. But he, uh, one of the uh, pictures that was being sold uh, in Sotheby's was a picture, famous picture, a uh, girl with a balloon. It's a really iconic Banksy picture. Uh, the hammer went down at £860,000, which was around about, I think around about four, five, three or four hundred thousand pounds more than was expected. So this person uh, paid a lot more for this Banksy piece. I'm a big fan of Banksy, so I can't say that I would pay £840,000, but I would love to own a Banksy piece. I think he's really incisive in the way that he speaks. And some of you are already thinking he's nuts. Anyway, the hammer went down. And just as the hammer went down, there was a whirring sound. And the picture kind of disappeared out of the bottom of the frame and was half shredded. There was consternation in the auction room. The auctioneer quickly asked some of the technicians to lift the picture off the wall. They hurried it out into the back. And somebody had just paid 800 and odd thousand pounds for a picture which has just been shredded. The interesting thing is now there's massive speculation. Who was in on it? Sotheby's in on it? How much is it worth now? That's a really interesting question, isn't it? I've just spent 840000 on a picture that has just been half shredded. Initially, you would think, ugh, no, this is a disaster. Why, what have I done? I've parted company with a serious chunk of money because I have bought into the identity of this piece of work, and now it is strips of paper hanging out of the bottom of the frame. That's a really interesting event, I think, in all sorts of ways. We're going to come back to it this afternoon in a, in a couple of different ways. But, but one of the questions that least that it initially asks is this. What is a Banksy? What is it? What is the identity of this thing? This thing on the wall that was one thing once that becomes something else. It's changed its identity. And we're trying to work out what is it that we're holding on to? What have we lost? What have we gained? It's a really fascinating question. Identity is the, one of those questions that we ask in all sorts of ways. We ask it about artwork. We ask it about our profiles online. We ask it about 
the relationships that we have with our work in terms of who am I? Somebody asks you who you are, uh, how, how do you tend to introduce? A lot of people would say, well, I, I'm, um, I, my name's Paul, and um, I work at X, I do this. Our identity becomes something that we do. Identity is an incredibly important thing, isn't it? This text that we're looking at this afternoon is all about identity. And it asks the striking question, the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Isn't it fascinating? A question which we ask when we see a piece of, well, I ask it, maybe you don't. I, I ask, what is the identity of this thing that's just being shredded? And at the same time, we're asking exactly the same question from an event 2,000 years ago. Because the identity of people, who they are, what, the, what they bring, has not changed down through the millennia. We are asking exactly the same questions because they are significant to us. They mean something to us because behind all of that, we are all trying to find our identity in relation to the identities around us. So let's ask the question this afternoon as we come to this text. Who, what is the identity of this Jesus of Nazareth and what is my identity in relation to Him? This comes on the back of uh, an amazing series of events in the life of Jesus. Past couple of weeks, we've been looking at uh, the sower, this story that Jesus told, tells of seed being thrown out onto different surfaces from hard paths to rocky ground to good soil, and we find that Jesus speaks to His disciples and He explains that that is all about receiving me as the Word. It's all about receiving me. I'm telling this story to other people. They'll hear the story. They'll wonder what it is, but I'm telling you so that you can go and tell everybody else. It is all about my identity. And so we then have Mark describes another series of events for us. He's taught in this way. People are amazed. Jesus then calms a storm in a remarkable way. He restores a possessed man. He heals a woman, and He raises a girl from the dead. All of those events have gone on between the story of the sower and this event. Uh, and you might think, well, <laughs> with all of those amazing events going on, why do we choose this bit? Because this bit is what points us to the heart of the question that Mark is presenting to us. What do you and I make of Jesus of Nazareth? So we get to this point. We see that Jesus, having done all of these remarkable things, He returns home. Verse 1, He says, Jesus left there and went to His hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom 
that has been given him. What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? It's a picture which marks all of, actually, all of the gospel writers present to us again and again and again. It's written about outside of the Bible. It's written about by other historians. The famous historian Josephus writes about Jesus, uh, and he speaks about this remarkable impact that Jesus had on ordinary people. And the impact that he had on ordinary people, we would think, wouldn't we, the impact, the amazing impact is the incredible things that he did, raising, raising the dead, healing the sick, calming the storm, all of those kind of things are important. But actually, all of the gospel writers make probably more of an emphasis on the fact that Jesus engages with ordinary people and he speaks to them, and when they hear him, they are amazed. They are amazed when he speaks. He brings the kind of conversation, the kind of, we, it's described in here as teaching. But you know, I think what all of these people are looking at is they're, they're doing all of the things that you and I are seeking to do all of the time. They are trying to make sense of life in their context. Their context was first century Judaism under Roman law. But when Jesus comes in, he doesn't just talk in a way which is like all of the other people who are teaching them. He speaks to them in a way which gets right under their skin, gets right into their deepest thoughts, and they are amazed. Now, I think the only way that somebody has that kind of impact on us is when they really speak about the real issues of life, the things that really touch us. You know, I, I, I don't know what some of you are, yeah, maybe there's still some who are in school. Some of you uh, will remember relatively recently school. School is a dim and distant past for others of us, but when I think back, when I remember school, I remember that I, I just did not connect with many lessons, I'll be honest with you. When my teachers stood up and they were teaching me I was really one of those disconnected pupils. I, I, it, just didn't, it just didn't get me. It just didn't touch me. It, it, it had no relevance to what I thought was important in life. That wasn't, well, it probably might have been a little bit of their problem, but it was certainly more my problem. I didn't see the importance of school, full stop. But when somebody gets up and they speak to you and it connects and it just, it just engages with the issues that you're thinking about and you're grappling with and you're struggling through life, that has a massive impact on you, doesn't it? That's what Jesus did again and again and again. That's what he did when he went home to his hometown. Now, it's really important that we see that he did that before we move on to the next bit. He speaks and people are amazed. They are challenged. They are, their thoughts are provoked by the words that Jesus uses. It seems as though Jesus has spoken this story about the parable of the sower, about this seed that's going out, 
And then there's this series of remarkable events, and then he comes back home, and it speaks about the word, Jesus' words, now like seeds being spread out amongst the people in his town. They're amazed by it, and it seems as though everything is set up for them to be the kind of people who receive the word, and it grows up inside of them. Look what actually happens. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. I find the way Mark writes that is remarkable. He writes it in such a way that he prepares us with anticipation for one thing, and the opposite happens. They're amazed, he says. They're in, they find Jesus' teaching incredible. He's already said that it's all about the Word and you receiving the Word. They're receiving the Word, aren't they? It's about to explode in his hometown. But actually... They take offense. The seed that Jesus describes as being thrown out, landing in our minds and in our hearts, and doing a number of things, one of which is landing on a, our heart, which is described like a pathway, which has been trodden hard. And when it lands on that pathway, there is no chance of it growing up because the birds can swoop in and they can take that seed and it is gone. And what, what we expect is that they will be the kind of hearts that are like good soil and his hometown becomes like pathway soil. Isn't that remarkable? But why do they behave in that way? What do they do they listen to Jesus, they're amazed, and then they critique Jesus. And they say, Let, let's think about this. Who is he? Well, number one, he's the carpenter, isn't he? And his brothers and sisters live amongst us. They, they reduce Jesus down from what Mark says at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, this is who he is, the Messiah, the Son of God. They reduce him down, they strip him of all of that part of his identity, and they say, actually, Jesus is just like one of us. He's just a carpenter. He's just the brother of these who shop in the marketplace with us, his brothers and sisters who we know. There is nothing special about Jesus. In understanding, in trying to question, in coming to terms with the identity of Jesus, these people do what people have done for the past 2,000 years. They reduce Jesus down to the status of an ordinary human being. Now, on the one hand, we could say, well, that's 
That's problematic. Of course it is. On the other hand, it speaks to us about something else, that in one sense, Jesus is that. <laughs> Jesus is the carpenter. Jesus is the brother and of his brothers and sister, sisters. Jesus is, in one sense, an ordinary human being, but what they do is they look at Jesus, his, these people who hear him teaching, and they strip him of half of his identity and concentrate only on one bit. He's just a human being. What they do has been done repeatedly down through the centuries. In fact, I would say that many of the conversations that I've had down through the years have been just that. Reducing Jesus down to just an ordinary man. Just an ordinary person. You might be coming to terms with this message of the Christian faith. On the one hand, one of the greatest bits of news is the fact that Jesus is truly human. He, he's a, he's a, he was a carpenter. And he was the brother of brothers and sisters. But if you stop there, you make it possible for Jesus only to be interesting. <laughs> you, you lose all of his divine nature. The fact that G Mark says right at the beginning, Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. I'm going to tell you, and now when he goes back home, they say, I'm going to strip him of all of that. I'm going to reduce him to just being a human being. What happens when, they, when you do that? What happens when you strip Jesus of that divine nature? Look at what happens. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, amongst his relatives, and in his own home. Listen to this. This is breathtaking. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. That's mind-blowing. It doesn't say he decided not to. It doesn't say he withheld. It says he could not do. I, I think there is an incredible mystery in that. But at least what it tells us is that when we strip Jesus in our minds of the potential of His divine nature, we also strip the possibility of His divine involvement in our lives. We strip it. Whenever you reduce Jesus to just being an ordinary human being, that is all that you will ever get about Jesus in your life. You'll just get an ordinary human being. He'll be an interesting person from history. He'll be somebody who's worth finding out about, but he will do nothing for you. Jesus, it seems, in some remarkable way, is stripped of his divine power in one sense because they have stripped him of his divine nature. That's, that, is, that is remarkable. It, it says to me that when we do that, we are responsible 
for the fact that Jesus is not engaging in a way which is remarkable and breathtaking in our lives. We are accountable for that loss. We, we, we are lost. And, and, and the people who should have received Him don't receive Him. Do you see what's happened? The disclosed Jesus is misidentified and everything is lost. The disclosed Jesus is misidentified, and everything is lost. Look at what happens in the next bit. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. And He set a pattern now for the explaining, the communicating, the sharing, the heralding of the good news about Him, He sets a pattern in this next moment. He was amazed at their lack of faith, and Jesus, sorry, calling the twelve to Him, He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Look at what happens. Jesus now, the identified Jesus who's been misidentified, gets a hold of these disciples who've been working with him, and, and he sends them out to share the message of him to everybody around. That, that is a really, in human terms, that is a weak thing to do, isn't it? Look at it. It, it's a bit like um, it, it's a bit like having a a really great football player that you really want to meet, and you go to the ground, and um, you know you turn up at Barcelona, and you want to meet Messi, and uh, the, the the person that you actually meet is the guy who looks after his boots and cleans them and puts them on the shelf. That that's a bit what it's like. Jesus is the one who has been going around. He's been sharing this incredible message. He's been healing people. He's been raising people from the dead. He's been calming storms. He's been doing all of these incredible things. And then He takes all of that incredible, powerful message, and He gives it to two guys, and He says, go out and share it. That is, that is weak, isn't it? In fact, even more, he strips them of any possible self-reliance that they might have had. He makes them even weaker. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except the staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus says, this incredible message that is me, that I've been communicating, that has been refused in my hometown, I'm now going to give to you and go out and share it. Oh, and by the way, don't go out with any self-sufficiency. Just turn up. 
That, in human terms, is a recipe for disaster. Except for one thing. Jesus had given them authority. That changes everything. And so they go out. And what happens? They went out and preached that people should repent. They've drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Do you see what Mark is saying? Jesus goes to his hometown where you would expect him to be wonderfully, joyfully received. Everybody's going to get right on board with the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, present with him, and they refuse him because they strip him of his identity. Then he says, now you go and tell people about me. Don't go with any strength. And when the disciples go out, they are received spectacularly. The undisclosed Jesus, who is communicated only by ordinary guys, disciples going out, the undisclosed Jesus is identified by the people who hear those disciples. Isn't that remarkable? The opposite happens for the disciples as happens for Jesus in his hometown. Why? Well, number one, because he sets a pattern which is absolutely consistent for all of time, that he empowers those disciples to go out and speak. He gives them an authority to go and speak. And they speak in his authority. You see, it looks as if they're going out weak, but the reality is that they're not. It looks as if they're going out ill-equipped, but the reality is that they are not. They are going with absolutely everything that they need to go and to speak to ordinary people about Jesus. And when they do, people identify, recognize, and embrace Jesus even though they haven't seen Him. Isn't that a remarkable picture that is being painted in this? What's happening? Jesus is saying, do you remember that sower picture that I told you about? Some of the seed will fall on the path. That was the most extreme case. It was seed that fell and just did nothing. All of the other seed, it kind of, in different ways, it sprouted up for short periods of time. But at one end of the spectrum, there's the seed that falls on the path. At the other end of the spectrum, there's the seed that falls in good ground. And Jesus is saying, these guys who should have received me are actually the pathway. And these guys who had no expectation of receiving me are actually the good soil. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is saying, effectively, the message is not dependent on my physical presence. <laughs> Isn't that you think, Jesus is walking around Galilee and all of these areas. Surely it depends on His presence, and yet He's saying, no, even when I am present with you, it still doesn't depend on my presence because I can equip you, I can give you authority to go and to speak. And when you do, people will receive me. It's amazing. 
That is breathtaking. In fact, it's a transition which is so significant that it, it, it creates a foundation for the way that the message of Jesus is communicated from this moment on right the way through to Castleford, 21st century. Why? Because actually the message is communicated by ordinary people who are ill-equipped, who don't have any capability. In human terms, and it's really significant for us as we enter into this building today, we are, we were look, expecting to be in last week actually, we were going to look at the light, and, we, and it would have been great, but actually it's great because we're looking at this now. We need to remember that when we come in and we proclaim the message of Jesus in human terms, we're like these disciples without a bag, without a coat, without anything. We are ill-equipped to communicate the message of Jesus. A wall and some lights in the front and a cafe and all of that kind of thing does nothing to communicate the message of Jesus effectively on its own. It does nothing except for one thing. The words of Jesus when He says, I will give you authority. That changes everything. It reminds us that when we speak about Jesus, we do not speak about Jesus in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own abilities. We have got nothing. But what we do have is the authority of Jesus to speak. We have the authority of Jesus to speak to people in a way which, humanly speaking, we should never communicate to the hearts, hearts and the minds, the inner consciences of our very being. And yet, remarkably, we do. Why? Because Jesus, who seems to not be present, when He sends out the disciples, is actually present because He's present there in His Spirit. And then there is this remarkable and incredible outpouring of the Spirit of God when Jesus has returned to heaven that spreads out into all of the languages and the disciples start to speak to every language in Jerusalem at that time so that we will know that Jesus gives us the authority to speak today about Jesus in a way which gets under the skin of people, speaks about His true identity, and asks the question that these disciples are asking is this, what is your relationship, what is your identity in the relationship and identity of Jesus of Nazareth? What is you, who are you in relation to Him? message is the same. We're called to repent. That's what Jesus says. It means we're called to turn around. That's what repent means. It means turn around. We're heading in one direction, and that direction is all about self-sufficiency. It's all about personal identity. It's all about me and finding my identity in myself or in things or in people that are temporary. And Jesus says, you, 
you are heading for a crisis when you do that. Therefore, repent, turn around, place your trust, place your hope in Jesus, in, in the identity of the one who has come, who is not temporary, but who is eternal. The one who says, I can speak to you today in first century Palestine in a way which speaks right into your heart when it's ordinary ragamuffin guys who've got no two pants to rub together, but they speak in a way which has the sort of authority that Jesus had, and people are blown away, and they say, I want that. And it happens again still today, where people speak about Jesus, and the hope of Jesus in this world is so appealing in the frail, temporary, transient issues of life today which are so tentative, so frail, and we say, I want that Jesus. I want that identity, not in me anymore, but in that real identity. Back to Banksy. I would argue, like every good enthusiast for modern art, that the picture is not the artwork. It's what he's saying. See, it's not simply a picture of a girl with a balloon. Will Gombertz, who's the BBC art critic, he, he's um, a fascinating guy. Looks, looks really interesting if you know him. He says this, Banksy makes art that, as Hamlet said, holds the mirror up to our nature to show virtue her feature, scorn her own image, and the very age and body of the time, his form and pressure. It's a great line, that, isn't it? Art holds a picture up to us. I guess in that moment, what he's saying is, look at yourselves. You're feeling in that moment as though you've lost everything when something gets shredded. And then you are elated when you realize that you, are, you own one of the greatest 21st century moments in art history. And suddenly you're elated. And the reality is you are holding on to something which is so fragile and so tentative and so nothing. You see, that, that's what I think Banksy is trying to do in that moment. He's trying to hold the light up and say, what do we hold on to? We're holding on to a brand, an image, a something which lasts for just a few moments in the history of the world. And place the identity of that picture alongside the identity of Jesus of Nazareth Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, and we say which identity out of those two has truly stood the test of time? Which of those two identities will I, will I hold on to? Which of those two identities is going to give me hope in the darkest of moments? Which of those two identities is going to bring me joy unsurpassed. 
which one of those two identities can I truly say I will enjoy forever? You see, that's the identity that Jesus is revealing through ordinary disciples who go out with nothing, but people receive that message because it's empowered by Jesus. As we begin, almost I feel as though today is almost turning, you know, like a book, turning a page. This is a new chapter for Christ Church. It, it really feels like that to me in a really great way. My prayer is that for those of us who hold on to and trust in that Jesus, that His identity will be something that we hold on to more than we ever have. That our identity, His, our identity will be in Him and not in what we've put together. Rather, what I would want us to do is take what we have put together and make sure that in every possible way we are using it to point again and again to His identity. So that as we said last week, all of these things, these incredible creative gifts and talents are not, they're not either of value or not of value, they become of incredible, inestimable value when we say they point to Jesus. That's my prayer. If we know Jesus, if we don't know Jesus this afternoon, in that way, if we only know of Him as a human being who has lived 2,000 years ago, what this text calls us to do is to consider the alternative. That what Mark says at the beginning of his message is that he is actually truly God present with us. Two identities brought together mysteriously into one eternal Son of God. That changes everything. It changes everything when a Banksy gets stripped out the bottom of a frame and you've lost something and then suddenly gained something. I reckon you can probably multiply 800,000 by four, five times now. But it's nothing compared to knowing Jesus. That true identity. If we think of Him only as human, we will strip Him of His power to speak in our lives. If we open up ourselves to the identity of Jesus in that supernatural, spiritual dimension, we will open ourselves up to the most incredible knowledge of God. 